Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 110 today. We started with Psalm 2. Uh, went to Psalm 8, and in our study of the Messianic or the Royal Psalms, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. And uh, to make a, a confession before we begin, uh, Psalm 10 has always been a very intimidating, very uh, scary psalm to me. As I read, maybe it's just because of the, the, the preacher that's in me, when I read my Bible, I always look at passages and kind of rate them on, on how easy that would be to preach. And when I got to Psalm 110, there was always this big black cloud over it, thinking, man, I hope I never have to preach this because it just seems so, so complicated and so strange in many ways. And then I was uh, agreed with the elders to do a, a series on the royal psalms, and it dawned on me, oh no, I've got to preach through Psalm 110. And uh, so those fears kind of came back, and I thought, well, I could just skip it. And then I realized, well, that's not going to work. And so I finally decided to preach it. And my logic was like this. It's going to be far easier to preach Psalm 110 than to explain to the elders or Russ Leonard or Russ Rice or Breck or one of the deacons why I skipped Psalm 110 in preaching a series on a royal psalm. So here we are looking at what I've always dreaded, Psalm 110. And it, the dread has turned into a, a utter delight as I, I dug into this psalm and, and uh, tried to get material uh, to preach it and uh, to go a step further. Uh, instead of doing one sermon, we're going to do actually two sermons on this. There, there's so much here. Uh, psalm 110, as we'll see, has, has its tentacles running all through the New Testament. It's used 15 different times. And the sort of the format we're using here is we're going to spend maybe 30 to 40 minutes or 20 to 30 minutes looking at the original context of the psalm, how the readers of this psalm would have seen it and understood it without looking forward into the New Testament or other passages. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at the New Testament, how it interprets this psalm. And it's used so much in the New Testament that I felt we couldn't do justice to it if we spent 30, 40 minutes looking at its original context and only 10 minutes looking at how it's used in the New Testament. And like I said, Paul uses it, Jesus uses it, Peter uses it, the writer of Hebrews uses it. Uh, it's used throughout Revelation. The symbolism fills the book of Revelation. So today we're going to spend our time, do, do our, our, our exegetical work, our, our spade work, sort of uh, laying out what this psalm would have meant to the original readers. Uh, then today we're going to look after that, we're going to look at how Jesus used this psalm, what he did with it, and how Peter sort of finished what Christ started with the psalm. Uh, uh, Jesus raised a question that this psalm raised that nobody could answer. And Jesus never answered it. Well, we're going to see in uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter answers the question about this psalm that Christ raised. So we'll do that today. Then next week, we'll look at uh, how Paul used it, how the writer of Hebrew used it, and then how, if we have time, how it's used in the book of Revelation. So uh, with that in mind, we'll, we'll read it. Uh, we'll have a word of prayer. Then uh, we'll, we'll start doing some work. And it, again, it's not an easy psalm to preach. It's because I, I'm excited about it. It doesn't mean it's any easier. And there's times where you know, you know, the preacher does all the work in preparing it and laying it out in, in a simple way, and you guys just sit there and soak it up. And, and sometimes we got we to gotta share that responsibility. So it's going to be a little bit of a work we have to do to, to understand this, to grasp what, what's being said here. So we'll uh, read it and then pray for the Lord's blessing and help. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, has, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over a wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And you can see why there's a lot of strange stuff in here. This drinking from the brook, uh, this, uh, the dawn from the womb, uh, this dew. There's a lot of really strange things here that we'll have to do some work in understanding. So let's have a word of prayer and then begin. 
Our Father, we thank you for the time we have to gather together to study your word, to examine uh, what it says, and particularly what it says in, in light of who Christ is and, and our duties and responsibilities that we bear to him. We ask for your help as we dig through this passage, Father. We examine it as not just an academic work, but as your word to us, as manna from heaven coming to you, to your people, from you to your people, uh, to feed us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and, and to even, by the work of your spirit, to transform us more and more into the image of your blessed Son. So we, we ask for your help, Father, special help. Keep our minds awake and occupied with what we, we hear, and let us see something of the majesty, the, the beauty, the glory of Christ uh, in this passage, Father. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Now it starts out with these words, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool or a footstool for your feet, as some translations have it. Now, the English translation here, it kind of obscures what's being said in a bit. Uh, the odd thing is that the phrase in Hebrew, there's no noun here. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. There's no, there's no verb here. It's simply nouns. And the noun that's translated says here is the word for an oracle or an utterance or a, a divine revelation or declaration to somebody. So what's being done here is it's much stronger than the word says, as most translations have. But what's happening here is the Lord is giving an oracle to somebody. He's speaking a word of revelation. And we, we summarize that by saying the Lord says to my Lord. So yeah, the Lord is speaking here. But what he's speaking is significant because it's an oracle that comes from him that is expressing his will to this king that he is speaking to. Again, the first three words the Lord says, specifying the Lord God uh, who entered a covenant with his people. Again, the word Lord here too, is as we saw last week, it's the, the word Lord with the uppercase O-R-D. Remember what that means when we see that? It means that it's speaking of the divine name here of Jehovah, the covenant-making God. So this covenant-making God, the one who bears a special relationship with the people of Israel by nature of a covenant, he now is speaking to this God, this uh, other Lord, with an oracle that comes from him. Again, it comes from the Lord, but it is directed to this person, my Lord. And this sets up sort of a, a, three, uh, an, a scene with three actors. We have the Lord speaking, we have this second Lord that is being spoken to, and we have a third person who's simply describing what's happening here. He's listening, he hears the Lord speak, and he hears this oracle that's being given to this second Lord. And the second word, Lord, there is a different word for Lord. It's the word we saw last week, again, Adonai, and it just means it's a master, uh, it's somebody who is above or in a position of authority or power. So it's not, the Lord isn't, uh, doesn't have a split personality here where he's speaking to himself. No, this is a different word for Lord, and he's just speaking to another king, giving this oracle, in a sense, making up this promise. Now, what is the oracle? Well, it's this. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is, again, a rather, a rather odd phrase, uh, but it would have been very clear to the original speakers what this means here, the idea of sitting at the right hand. Uh, it denoted authority, Dignity, prestige, just the very word sitting denotes this idea of authority. Uh, Geneva and I watched uh, an adaptation of Jane Austen's novel, uh, Persuasion, Friday evening. And uh, as most Jane Austen novels have, there's a wealthy family, and uh, you're kind of peering into the life of this wealthy family, all, all the good things and bad things about them. And the Elliots are a, an aristocratic, very rich family, and they have servants everywhere. I mean, they, they don't even open a door by themselves. There's a servant there to open the door for them. They don't even uh, pour a glass of water, a servant brings it to them. And as you watch this, one thing you notice about the servants is that they're always standing. You never see a servant sit in these movies where the aristocrats, the wealthy people, the ones that have the power, they're the ones that are always sitting. So this idea of sitting here is the idea of receiving authority of power. You sit while everybody else serves you and ministers to you. So that alone uh, gives the idea of great authority, dignity. But he's not just sitting, he's sitting in, in a very specific place. Um, even in Psalm 2, we saw that the Lord uh, sits in the heavens and laughs and scoffs at the people who are mocking him and rebelling against him. So, the, But the idea of sitting... Uh, 
at the right hand of God, is, that was also the place of supreme authority. There's one position next to God that was immediately to his right hand, and the one who sat there had a special place of dignity and honor. Uh, it was his source of power. It was his source of strength. Uh, remember in uh, Solomon, when he took his throne, who did he have sit in his right hand? He designated that position to a specific person. Remember who it was? His mother sat there. So it's a place of dignity, it's a place of honor, it's a place of authority and power. So this king is, is invited to, to sit at the right hand, and he's to remain there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, or it just says footstool in the original Hebrew, as the uh, English version indicates. And again, this is just simply a, the idea of conquering. Uh, when an enemy was conquered, often the general would go to the residing general or the enemy general, and he would put his foot on his throat, and that was a symbol of complete domination. And the one who had his foot on the throat was somebody that was under complete subjugation or subjection, an utter defeat and humiliating defeat that this man was showing. So the idea that his enemies are going to be made a footstool for his feet, it's not just a, a defeat or a victory. It's an utter crushing defeat that completely subjugates the enemy, brings them into complete absolute submission. So this king is taken, he's put at the right hand of God, the place of authority. He's seated there. It's in heaven. Now, if he's seating in heaven, what is underneath his dominion? Where is his dominion? Well, it's everything. If you take somebody, and then the Jews had very uh, spatial ideas of things. When you put somebody above some, something, everybody below them was under that. So the idea that this king is being seated with the Lord at the Lord's right hand. Again, this is Yahweh, not some uh, generalized God, but Israel's God at his right hand with him, it showed his authority extended over all of the universe. Everything, every angel, every man, every king, everything was under his authority. And he is there until the Lord makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. So that, that's the oracle that's given here. Now in verse, chapter verse 2, we sort of go from heaven down to the earth and look at how this king's reign is going to play out upon the earth, how this promise is going to be fulfilled on the earth. And he says, the Lord sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter to rule in the midst of your enemies. And the, the language here should be familiar to us. Uh, a scepter here uh, is basically a, a symbol of power a symbol of authority. A king, if you've seen any of the movies about kings, they have a long pole there that they hold on to. It's usually bejeweled with a, a beautiful stones and gold and silver. Well, that's his scepter. And that scepter was a symbol, along with his crown, of his ruling authority and his power. And the scepter is used throughout scriptures uh, to designate not just uh, power, but messianic rule. The scepter will be given to certain people, and those people often have messianic authority. For example, in Psalm 2, uh, it says that the Messiah will shatter the nations with his rod of iron or his scepter of iron. Uh, Genesis 49.10, when Jacob is prophesying about his sons uh, before he dies. Each son has a specific prophecy about his destiny with regard to the nation of Israel. Uh, remember, it's Judah, he says, that the scepter will never depart from you. And what he's saying there is that you will have the rule, the authority over your brothers. And we'll see it in, throughout scripture, this authority uh, extends over to the nations and to the universe itself. But again, this idea of scepter is being used for Authority for power. Uh, Numbers 24, 17, a king would raise his scepter from Israel to crush the heads of his enemies. So this, again, scepter is power, it's authority, it's rulership uh, that this man now is given. And it's stretched forth from Zion. So here now we've gone from heaven, from that throne next to the Lord in heaven, to the earth where this king will extend his rule from. And it's Zion. Now whenever you see Zion, you think Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on a number of mountains. One of those mountains was called Zion. So any reference to, to Zion or Mount Zion is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. So this rulership is going to come from Jerusalem. Again, it's a, not just a scepter. It is a mighty, a powerful, a majestic scepter. And he's commanded, the word rule here in verse 2 is the word for command. He is commanded to rule in the midst of his enemies. 
that's an imperative, it's a command given to the king to exercise the authority has been given. He's given a command to extend his rule over his enemies. Uh, he is to take this rule, this authority and power that he's been given by the Lord and to rule destroy, control his enemies. Now, verse three is a rather difficult passage. Um, it says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy garments, or some translations are holy array, from the dawn of the morning or dawn of the womb, uh, with the dew of your youth will be yours. Uh, a lot of symbolism here that's rather difficult to understand. And, um, Commentators debate back and forth, and there's really not one commentator that agrees on all different aspects of it. There's sort of a theme that they all agree is being expressed here. Uh, the first, the idea of your people will offer yourself freely in the day of your power. The idea here is, is we have armies. This, soul, this king is going to have an army that comes with him to fight, to do battle. It's not, he's not going to be sitting there, and the Lord comes and, and fires death rays on the, the nations. He's going to come and fight. He's going to extend that scepter and destroy these nations. And to do that, he's going to need a what? An army, right? Well, it's describing here the army that is going to go with the Lord. And the first way it describes it is that they will, they will offer themselves freely. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. What is being spoken of here is the way that the people will serve this king. Most wars, uh, when they're fought or battles, you have conscripts, people you have to pretty much force at the point of a gun to come and fight for you. And when that happens, it makes warfare very difficult. I, I was reading where uh, war World War I officers were often given uh, sidearms, and they were to stand behind the army, and if any of their men came back from the battle, they were to take that gun and shoot them dead right there. Uh, one of the big problems in wars is people uh, deserting, conscripts just leaving the battle. Well, here it describes these men who volunteer. They're doing it freely. They're willingly offering themselves to this king for service in battle. And the word offering here, free will offering, is a very much stronger word because it is the word that's used to describe in the scripture the free will offering sacrifice. Now, now what is unique about that? What was the free will sacrifice? Well, it was one that you gave just out of thankfulness to the Lord. The Lord did something to you. He blessed you in some way. And you felt out of just the thankfulness of your heart, out of love and adoration for the Lord, you would make him an offering. This wasn't an offering that was given by compulsion. Some offerings, a certain day of the year happened, you gave it. A certain event happened, you gave it. Where this is just one out of thankfulness to the Lord, out of a show of your devotion and love for him, to his goodness to you, you offer offer him a sacrifice. And that word here is used to describe this, this volunteering of these soldiers. It's a willingness, it's out of a love for this king, out of a, a deep devotion and respect for him that they are offering themselves in the day of this battle. So it says something about the character of the king here as well, that he has people willing to serve him in this way out of love and devotion. I read that Napoleon was so respected and loved by his people that often he would come in a, as a way of expressing his gratitude. He would come and he would, he would rub their earlobe like that. And that was the greatest honor you could ever have, was to have Napoleon, little, little guy, reach up, imagine that, and rub your earlobe. <laughs> Again, showing their love and devotion for their uh, general, for their leader and king. Again, the same idea is expressed here. Um, the next phrase is rather difficult. Holy array from the dawn of the womb, your youth are to you as do. These are all figures, uh, some of them rather, rather strange, that simply extol the king in his army. Uh, the idea of holy array, this is literally a, a splendor. It, uh, some translate it garment, but it's probably not garment. It's, just, it's a holy splendor, a holy array. Uh, a womb here is the source of life. Uh, dawn brings forth light, hope, vigor. Uh, this combined with, with the womb uh, denotes newness as well as the idea here of the king's army uh, is coming in splendor, majesty, beauty with strength, newness, and hope. Uh, the reference to dew. Uh, dew is a wonderful uh, reference to blessings and abundance. Remember where the, the manna came from in Genesis. It came from the ground. The dew would appear and when the dew disappeared, the manna would be there and it'd go and collect it and eat it. Uh, Proverbs 3.20 says, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like the dew of the grass. Um, 
And it was a source of life for the Jew in the wilderness. Uh, Genesis 27, 28 says, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So the idea of dew is a blessing, a delight, something that is enriching and encouraging to the people who receive it. Some places in the world, the only water they have is the dew that appears in the ground in the morning. They, they rain. There's, there's literally no rain throughout the year. So that dew is the only thing that sustains the land. I think the Jews would have been very familiar with that idea of dew being a blessing that, that sustains and strengthens us. So this, this army that the Lord goes out with, this king goes out with, it, it'll be a voluntary army. It'll be an army that, that brings life, that brings hope that brings encouragement, that brings victory. All the riches uh, that a righteous king can bring, he will bring with this army. Now, that, that's sort of the first oracle. There, there's two oracles here, or, or one oracle that's sort of divided up a, a little bit. We'll see how it's divided in a second here. Um, but the second one, again, it's a little bit odd here. It starts in verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, he's continuing the same oracle, but he seems to add an emphasis to this one. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. Well, why does the Lord need to swear? Why does he need to tell us that he's not going to change his mind? Just the fact that it's coming from him uh, should not be enough. The fact that he started this oracle in verse 1, uh, we should see clearly that it continues in verse 4. And, and this repetition, this sort of uh, heightened sense of purpose and promise be expressed. And, and what he's doing here, I think, is showing that, that how different this part is. Uh, this is a, a very strange thing to the Jew. This would have been an odd thing to hear the, these phrases here, this idea, this promise that is made. Uh, so again, it emphasizes what is being said here. Uh, not only is it important, but it's, it's sort of a, a different course that is being taken, one that the Jew probably would not have expected. Uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's the strange part right there that this Lord, uh, that he's swearing to this king that is at his right hand uh, is going to be a priest forever. Now that right there is strange. Why? Why would this have been odd to a Jew? Well, the Jews already had a priesthood, right? They had the Aaronic priesthood. Why do we need another priesthood? All the trouble the Lord went through to set up the Aaronic priesthood now seems to be purposeless because this new king is going to be a priest. And, and it, the Israelites were very good at keeping a distinction between the king and the priest. There were two separate offices in Israel. One was the king, one was the priest. Uh, the king did have some priestly duties, but they were very, very minimal. So this idea of a king priest would have been rather odd to a Jew. Why do we need a priest? We've already got a whole group. The Lord devoted a whole tribe of our people to be priests. Now you tell me this king is going to be a priest. So it would have raised many, many questions to the Jew. Therefore, the Lord says, I swear, and I will not change my mind. He's going to be a priest. Now, again, that's strange enough, but who he's going to be a priest after the order of is even stranger. It's this guy named Melchizedek. Now, if you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, you probably have never heard of Melchizedek. And the reason why, he's only mentioned once in the Bible, other than this, in Genesis. He's uh, indirectly referenced, we'll see next week, in Hebrews. But this in Genesis are the only places where this man is mentioned. And in Genesis, he's only mentioned in four verses. So why would the writer of uh, Psalm 110, which is David, pull this man out and put him here and say this king is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, I, I think it's, it's logical when we see who this priest actually is, who Melchizedek was. Was. The first one I, I thought I missed real quick here is that the first, there's two characteristics of this priesthood. First, uh, it's eternal. He said, You will be a priest forever. Uh, so that's kind of odd. You know, most of the priests died, right? Uh, so this one's going to be a priest forever. So that would have been curious. And then this order of Melchizedek raises the second question Why in the world will they be doing, uh, making a priest after Melchizedek? Well, Again, a bit about uh, Melchizedek. Uh, again, appears twice. The main appearance is in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. Uh, here, Abram, this is even before Abraham was renamed Abraham. This is Abram, actually. Uh, he went to a battle. To, I believe Lot had been captured by the king of Elam or something. And uh, he's going to rescue him. And he gets a bunch of kings together. And he goes and defeats the king of Elam and rescues Lot. So on his way home, uh, back to his... Uh, camp or his home, uh, he meets this king named Melchizedek. Uh, 
and he basically comes out and he comes, says from the city of Salem, and he blesses Abraham, and it says this uh, priest was a priest of the Most High God. So it's not just somebody who, who designated himself a priest. The Bible says he was a priest of the Most High God. He comes from the city of Salem. Uh, he comes out and he blesses Abraham. He says this to Abraham. Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, Abraham gave him a tenth of his spoils of war to him. And then Melchizedek disappears never to appear again until Psalm 110. Now, why would the writer of Psalm 110 or David put him here? Well, the reason why is Melchizedek was a unique person in the sense that he was a king and he was a priest. He ruled over the city of Salem, which is the old name for Jerusalem. So that has significance there, a king of Jerusalem who also was a priest who comes out and blesses uh, Abraham on his way back from his victory. So that's why he pulls Melchizedek out of almost uh, historical obscurity to apply him here. Here's an example of a priest king. Not only was he a priest king, but he was a king over Jerusalem where this king will also reign. And he is the perfect match, the perfect type for this king I am sitting at my right hand. So it's the idea of a priest king. So this new king uh, that the Lord is giving his power to is also going to be a priest. Now, the wheels should be turning in your heads here. Without even looking forward to the New Testament, you should be seeing connections, even children should be seeing connections. The king, the ruler, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, the high priest, all of these are are just pointing, screaming out for Christ. But we're not going to go there yet. We have a little bit more to go. We'll get there eventually. So the wheel should be spinning. Yes, I see. Light should be coming on. We're referencing the person of Christ in the New Testament. And again, we will get there. So Melchizedek is the perfect type of this new priestly king that God is speaking of here. So let me do a summary, then we'll finish this last verse, last couple of verses real quick. Uh, again, two oracles, uh, one and then one given with uh, a sense of intensification. Uh, the psalm begins with the first oracle of the Lord. This oracle makes a promise to the king that he will sit him at his right hand in the heavens, and there he will rule until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Um, the, the Lord speaks of the glories of this new army. He will rule with a strong, powerful scepter from Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. He will have an innumerable, holy, majestic army of men who freely volunteer out of love, devotion, and joy uh, to fight with him, to serve alongside him, and, and to even to die for him if necessary. This army will bring light, hope, uh, life, strength, and blessing to the people of God as they defeat the enemies. Then we have a second part of the oracle where the king will be given the honor and dignity of a priesthood, not just a priesthood, but an eternal priesthood that will last forever. And then that priesthood will be one after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek, the priest king, who the Lord, again, resurrects in a sense from the Old Testament and, and brings into this context. And, and Melchizedek also, it means the king of righteousness. Mel is the idea of king, the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. So not only is he king, but he's named the king of righteousness, which again, would have set off bells uh, to those reading this in the New Testament context. The king of righteousness. Now, the rest of the psalm, it simply describes in rather strange language how this new king will exercise his divinity, uh, his divinely given authority over his enemies. Uh, again, I'll just read it real quick. It doesn't really demand much, much explanation here. Uh, some rather graphic things. We're not skipping them because we're graphic. It's just, I think the idea is clear. Um, the Lord is at your right hand. Again, right hand is a position of authority, of, of power. Uh, the right hand was the, the hand you fought with, you defended yourself with. So if a man uh, had a strong right hand, hand. He was a powerful man. He was a great warrior. If that right hand was weakened, then then he was vulnerable and and weak as a fighter. So this king is going to be at, the right hand of this king is going to be his right hand. Uh, He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over a wide area. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So verses five and six are just 
descriptions of this king's authority and the power he will execute over his enemies and how thoroughly his judgment will be. Uh, again, he will execute judgments among the nations. That judgment will result in, in literally the filling of those nations with corpses. That's how, how extensive. Uh, the chiefs, these are powerful warrior type men. Uh, David had a certain number of chiefs who proved themselves in battle. There's actually lists of these in the Old Testament. Uh, these men will be shattered, um, again, over a wide earth. And then this really strange phrase here, verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And what in the world does that mean? After all this bloodshed and this destruction, this judgment, this odd phrase about the king uh, bending down and drinking from a brook and lifting his head. Well, again, a lot of debate among the scholars what this means, but it has the idea basically of... Um, it adds a quietness, almost a softness to this victory. Imagine the battle is done. Uh, you know, the, the groaning has ended. The, the dust is settled. The, the yells and the screams are, are, are silenced. And out of the picture is the king bending down at a water brook, taking a sip of the water and looking up at the battle. There's a sense of finality here. When is the king going to bend down and lower his head and take a drink? When it's over when the enemy is thoroughly defeated. So it's a symbol here of a, of, a, of, a, of a termination, of a quietness, of a peace where the king can finally bend down and take a drink, refresh himself in some way without the fear of, of battle. So again, beautiful way to end this psalm. I always thought it was strange, but it's really a beautiful way to end this psalm. So uh, again, I hope you have a sense of what's being said here. Uh, the two main oracles, the idea of the king being at the right hand of God and the idea of this king becoming a, uh, a priest, a high priest, eternal high priest. Now, how is this used in the New Testament? Again, we're going to look at one avenue here. We're going to see how Christ used it and how Peter used it, how Peter sort of augmented what Christ said. Again, 15 times it's used. So it runs all through the New Testament in wonderful, wonderful ways. And it, it's, it's never really the same. It's used in three or four different ways throughout the New Testament. So they're not, um, I wouldn't say disagreement, but they use it in different ways, different emphasis in different verses as well. Uh, let's start with Matthew 22. Let's turn our Bibles there to Matthew 22 as we see how this passage was used, first by Christ himself. All right, uh, verse 41, we'll start reading at. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ, that this Messiah? Whose son is he? Uh, they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then is, is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, Christ, imagine Christ being, being dogged by these Pharisees, always asking him questions, trying to trap him in a question. And so Christ turns the tables on him and says, okay, I've got a question for you guys. Uh, we all know that... that um, who, who Christ is, that he's the son of David. So he asked him that, whose son is the Christ? And any Jew in that day would have said, the son of David. So he raises a question. Okay, let's look at Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now he assumes that David is speaking here. So the my Lord, the my here is David himself. So he's, David is speaking of his Lord. And he says, how can David have a son who he calls Lord? In other words, a son is somebody who's subservient to you, somebody that submits to you all through your life. The son never rules over the father. That would have been a staple in Old Testament ideas. So how is this Lord David's son? How could he ever call his son Lord? And the Pharisees don't know. In fact, they're so stumped by the question, it says they never asked him another question again. Now, what's interesting is Christ never answers it either. So we're stumped here thinking, okay, tell us what it is. And 
chapter closes. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. From that day, did anyone dare ask him any more questions? So not only did he stump them, but he stumps us as we read this because we don't know the answer either. Well, fortunately, we do get an answer, and that answer comes in Acts chapter 2. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we will close here after looking at Acts chapter 2. And again, next week we'll pick up how Paul uses it and uh, some of the other apostles. A good exercise uh, for those of more academic uh, nature is to read through the, the sermons in Acts and, and try to, to summarize them. Follow the thought, see if you can trace the line of thought, the, the sometimes odd uses of reason that they use uh, to prove their points, and, and try to solidify or to um, uh, cr- get one idea, crystallize the idea of that sermon. Uh, it's a very interesting. I did it once, but I pretty much forgot all of them except for Acts 2. I remember that one very well. Uh, and when you do that in Acts 2, the, the sort of the, the theme of it, what, what, Paul, what Peter is trying to show is the authority of Christ. That is the theme of Acts chapter 2, the Pentecostal sermon. What authority does Christ have and how did he give that authority? And what prompted the sermon was, it was a day of Pentecost, remember? And what happened at the day of Pentecost? Well, Christ went up into heaven, uh, the spirit came down, uh, it was manifested, the spirit was on the people by the fact they spoke in tongues, and those tongues were, were, were languages that the people understood. This was during the time of the uh, dysphoria, where the Jews from different nations came uh, and worshipped in Jerusalem, and so these Jews spoke different languages. And so the tongues here is these apostles and their followers giving the gospel in their very own language, and it says that they heard it in their own language, and it lists a whole bunch of languages that they understood it in. And so, well, how do you explain this? Well, the Pharisees said, well, obviously they're, they're just drunk. Uh, they've been having wine. And, and Peter gets up to give his sermon to explain this phenomenon. What is happening here? What is going on? And first of all, he says, they're not drunk. It, it's what, seven o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody drinks at that time. And then he begins to go and explain exactly what's happening here. And he starts in Joel chapter two. And in Joel chapter 2, you have an example or an instance of God pouring out his spirit, a mighty display of God's spirit upon, it seems, all of mankind. Uh, And without getting into the details, what Peter says is, look, what you're seeing here is what happened in uh, Joel chapter 2. He says, literally, this is a fulfillment of what is happening in Joel 2. In other words, God is sending his spirit. Again, that was a, a major event in Israel's history, where God sent his spirit to his people. And we'll see this in a bit, the importance of this, but what happens when the spirit comes is there's blessing to God's people and there's judgment. If you keep reading through Joel 2, uh, there's the sun being blackened out, there's the, uh, or turning red, there's uh, stars falling from the sky, and almost every place where the spirit is poured out in the Old Testament, you have this, this, this dual nature here. You have blessings to God's people and you have this horrendous judgment coming upon mankind. So it's a reason to rejoice and a reason to fear. So, uh, Peter basically says, this is what's happening. The spirit is coming. God has sent his spirit. Now the question is, who sent that spirit? And what Peter is going to show is that it is Jesus that sent this spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, who sends the spirit? Again, this is the same spirit that it says that that brooded over the creation. When God made the original uh, coatic creation, it was the spirit who hovered, who warned. The image there is a a bird uh, hovering over its nest, protecting its nest. That the spirit of God was there doing that. And all through the Old Testament, we find the spirit of God doing these mighty, great, powerful acts on behalf of God. And now he's saying that Jesus is the one who sent that spirit. Well, how could Jesus have ever done that? And Peter's point is to prove that Jesus has the authority now to send God's spirit. And his reasoning is is thus. And again, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But first, he demonstrates the resurrection. He goes to Psalm 6, where it basically said, David says that uh, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay or see corruption. Again, this reasoning may be a little bit odd for us in our day, but it was perfectly legitimate to the people back then. Uh, and he says, look, you know, David said that Lord won't allow my body to rot, correct? Now, we know where David's body is, right? There's a tomb over there. I can point to that. If you open it up, I guarantee you will see that David rotted and David decomposed. So 
David must have been speaking about somebody else. Who was he speaking of? Well, he was speaking of Christ himself. And he uses this as an example or a proof that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Who else was raised from the dead? Who else can we assign to this other than Christ himself? Who uh, We know the stone was rolled away. We have thousands of witnesses going around speaking about Christ, uh, walking around after he died. We have uh, Roman guards who are talking about it. We have hundreds of people uh, expressing their view that they saw it. How can we deny it? And they couldn't deny it. But he gives it a theological basis and shows that, look, it was predicted that God would raise somebody from the dead. It wasn't David, so it had to be Christ. It had to be Jesus himself. It says, this Jesus, he says, God raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses. In other words, we saw it. He's appealing to people that actually saw the resurrection. We were witnesses to it, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says. So here he's saying, look, Jesus was raised from the dead and God gave him his spirit. That spirit you're seeing today, this fulfillment of the great prophecy of God returning to save and to judge his people is being done now and the person that instigated it was the person of Christ. Why? Because he now has been given the spirit by the father. He now has that authority and what you're seeing is his direct action and that would have shocked the average Jew to say that God gave a man that kind of authority to execute judgment, to send his spirit in the way that it's being sent would have been unbelievable for a Jew, to see that this man has this authority. And Peter says, well, he was resurrected. We know that. And once he was resurrected, he was given the spirit, the power, and the authority of the spirit. Now, how does Peter justify that, that God gave him that authority? Well, he quotes Psalm 110. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, this is what David says now. The Lord, again, he For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, this is David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. So how could David's Lord be his son? Because this Lord was given the place of authority. This Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. He is the one who has the authority. And what's important here is is Peter's conclusion. He says this, therefore, Let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him. Now, who's the him here? It's Jesus. He has made him both Lord and Christ. What is the Lord a reference to? The king at the right hand of the Lord. The one who's given this authority, this power, who will come and rule the nations, who who will fill the nations with dead corpses. That is the Lord that Christ is being referred to here. It is the honor, dignity, authority being given to him. And he has made him Christ. So this Jesus is a twofold person. He is the Lord or twofold office, the Lord and he is the Christ. The one who God promised to sit at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for my feet. Then he drills at home the one who you crucified. That is the one God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, what should have been the response of those listening? You should have been terrified. But we crucified the, the one spoken of in, in Psalm 110, the one who the Lord sat at his right hand, the one who he gave all authority and dignity, the one he, he would judge the nations through. We crucified him. So you can imagine the terror that ran through their hearts. What have we done? And that is exactly how they respond. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced through the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I don't think this is just a very calm, you know, what shall we do? This is probably a frantic. They realize that they have crucified the Lord of glory and, and, and killed him. And Peter's response is the following. 
And now, one more comment here. Often we tend to, uh, this, this, this pricking of their heart, or piercing through the heart, we often uh, read a, a Puritan psychology into this. Uh, uh, they were given a, a fresh view of their sin. Uh, the Lord opened their eyes and showed them the blackness of their hearts, the, the festering, foul bubbling, frothing foulness of their soul. We tend to, to read that in here. And I'm a big fan of Puritan psychology, but don't let it obscure what's happening here. They've come to realize not the blackness of their heart, but they have crucified the king of glory, the one spoken of in Psalm 110. That is what strikes fear into their heart. And Peter's response is, believe, repent, and be baptized. He says, and you, your children, and those who are far off will receive the promise. Now, often this passage is used as an example of a infant baptism. I know we've got some uh, people here who are Presbyterians and believe in it, but uh, respectfully, that's not what's being said here. Not even close. Uh, the reason he refers to children here is not because he's trying to assure them that if they baptize their children, they'll, they'll be outward members of non-elect members of the covenant. What he's saying here is that, remember when the Jews crucified Christ and, and Pilate gave him an out? And remember what they said? Let, if he is an innocent man, let his blood be on us and our children. So these are the same people, Peter points out, you crucified him, the same ones that took that oath. Let his blood be on us and our children if he is innocent. So Peter says here, look, if you repent and be baptized, your children who are under a curse because of your words, if they repent and are baptized... And not only this, but those who are far off, who every Jew knew was under a curse already, the Gentiles, if they believe or they repent and they are baptized, they will receive what? The promise. What does the promise refer to? The blessings of the Spirit. That Christ, as he's poured out his Spirit among us today, as you've seen our joy, our love, our adoration for him, as you've seen us, uh, the, the grace we've been given, as you see that, you will receive that same grace. You will receive that same mercy. And Paul, in Galatians, when he's trying to convince Peter of the nature of salvation, of justification, he says, how did you receive the Spirit, Peter? Did you receive it by faith or by works? And how did Peter receive it? By faith, Paul takes all of salvation. He doesn't use the word justification, how you justified, but he says, how were you saved? How did you receive the spirit? And it was by grace. So what Christ is, or Peter's promise here is if you repent, then you will receive that same blessing that was given to those people on the day of Pentecost. You, if your children repent and are baptized, the Gentiles, if they do so, all of them are saved. And we cannot take, there's two vows here, two verbs here, repent and be baptized. And we cannot take the one verb and apply it to children, be baptized, and not apply the word repent. And it goes to both, the, uh, the Jew, their children, and the Gentiles. Two verbs. Three subjects, three objects, repent and be baptized. So the idea here is that your children, that they are also out from under the curse if they repent and are baptized. So the offering here is not just to those present, but to those who are far off. And you and I, unless you're a Jew here, you are the ones who are far off. You are the ones who are, are, are a distance from God by your sin, by your evil, by your wickedness. And the promise here is for you that if you repent, and the idea of baptism, don't get all hung up about baptism, whether are we saved by baptism. Baptism here was a necessary, not salvific, but a necessary step that every believer was expected to take to come in and be, be a member of the people of God. And the idea of an unbaptized person being a church, being in a church, functioning in a church, would have been completely abhorrent to the apostles. You were baptized out of your obedience to Christ and no questions were asked. You did it or you were out of the church. So don't be all caught up in what baptism means here. He's just saying this is the entrance into the church through which you will persevere through the graces exist to bring you to perseverance, to growth, and to the stability that Christ wants you to be. So it's not a, a, an idea of baptism by uh, salvation by baptism. It's just stating what is expected of the people of God, and that is they are baptized, and the apostles were not ashamed to tie those two together in a way that we sometimes wouldn't dare do it. So if you're going to repent, then you're going to be baptized. End of the story. No questions asked. 
So the idea here is repenting, uh, realizing your sin, acknowledging your sin, and not only acknowledging, but changing the direction. You turn from that sin, from the idols that you followed, and embrace Christ, follow him. It's not just a change of mind, it's a change in your direction. You followed idols, you worshiped idols, you worshiped yourself. Maybe it was science. There's a, a million different idols that we can worship today. You turn from them, you acknowledge that they are not true, that they do not satisfy, they do not give life but bring nothing but destruction and you turn then to the true and the living God and embrace him and who does God put in place for us to see when he displays that true and living God it's Christ himself he is the image of the true and living God and God opens our eyes and gives us faith in him and his beauty and his glory his ability to save and when that happens all we can do is fall at our feet and submit whatever Whatever you call me to do, I will do. If it's to be baptized, I will do it. If it's to be a member of a church, I will do it. Whatever you call me to do, Lord, you've saved me from such a mighty thing. You've done such a great work on my behalf. You delivered me from such a, a horrible, eternal fate that anything that you call me to, I will gladly and willingly do. That is what repentance is. And that's what Peter is calling these people to. And when it's given the Spirit comes, and all the blessings, uh, blessings that we cannot even know about, understand, flow to us through that union of us to Christ. Uh, the, uh, Calvin says, the way his books are outlined, uh, he talks about the, the blessings that God gives his people, just page after page of all the blessings that he gives us. Then, and he talks about another chapter, another book on how we receive those blessings. And he says, I'm summarizing here, that basically these blessings are never going to be a part of us until we're united to Christ through the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who transfers these blessings to us. So that, that's Peter's point here. Excuse me, I knew this was going to happen. There we go. The point Peter's making here is that when the Spirit comes, all the blessings that Christ secured from us come to us as well. So sometimes I think we don't do justice in simply describing our salvation as being justified. Uh, that the whole... Uh, group of blessings, uh, the, all the blessings of the heavenly places become ours when we trust, when we believe. Again, Peter is pointing the people to that. And before we close, if, if you're not a believer, if you don't understand the blessings of Christ, if you're still, as Paul describes them, as a, a stranger to the covenants of grace, then it's laid out here as clear as can be. Repent. Right now, you, ha you have false gods that you worship. It may be yourself. It may be your works. It could be a, a dozen things. You know your heart. And I trust you, you can travel through it and find out what that thing is you worship and turn from it and, and turn to Christ, embrace him, believe him, follow him, obey him. And at that point, the spirit will bless you, will come to you and give you the graces that you need to persevere. So brethren, uh, next week we will look at the, how Paul uses this and we will look at how the writer of Hebrews uses this, and we'll hopefully see how Revelation uses it as well. So I trust you've been encouraged. I trust you, when you read this now, I hope you'll see all these connections. We'll see more of them next week. But again, it just runs all through the New Testament. It's beautiful, and I couldn't do justice in one sermon. So next week, hopefully, we'll, we'll review a little bit and then see how Paul and the other apostles use this. Let, let's pray and then be dismissed. Or not dismissed. Cody will come up and lead us in music, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we are grateful uh, for the word you've given us today. We're thankful for the uh, at times the difficulty of understanding that word, but we're thankful for the clarity that comes when uh, we dig in and, and learn and, and read and pray and, and study. And we're thankful for the clarity that has come today uh, to show us uh, who this psalm is speaking of, the, the greatness of Christ, the blessings that you've given him, Father, and seating him on right, your right hand, and, and the blessings that flow to us as we repent, as we turn to him and embrace him in faith, Father. The great blessings of the Spirit, your almighty Spirit, that one who hovered over the, the waters of the original creation now uh, lives within us to give us life, to give us strength, to give us hope, and, and to reveal who Christ is to our hearts, Father, that we might love him and follow him. So we pray that you do your work upon every person here. Let the Spirit work in him in, in any way that is necessary, Father. And for those who, who, again, don't know Christ, that the Spirit would do a mighty work in them uh, to bring them to a true knowledge, a true understanding of, of who Jesus is, and that they would embrace him by faith and repentance, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.